0: The story goes, you're walking in the woods and see a wristwatch on the ground. You don't know how it got there or why it has come to be abandoned here, but you can surmise that someone, somewhere, designed and made it due to its complexity. This is the basic premise of the argument for intelligent design, mobilized by the religious in their efforts to demonstrate evidence for their belief in a divine creator. So how does this relatively simple story translate into a more fully fleshed-out philosophy for understanding our world and universe, and how does that philosophy stand up to mathematical scrutiny? This is what Professor Eliot Sober works to elaborate in his new book, The Design Argument, which is a monograph in Cambridge University Press's series, Elements in the Philosophy of Religion. Sober's book analyzes the various forms that design arguments for the existence of God can take, and focuses primarily on two of these. The first is known as biological creationism and concerns the complex adaptive features that organisms have, and the second design argument, referred to as the argument from fine-tuning, begins with the assertion that life could not exist in our universe if the constants found in the laws of physics had values that differed more than a little from their actual values, and our remarkable luck here points to a divine creator, or so the argument goes. Elliot Sober is the William F. Vilas Research Professor and Hans Reichenbach Professor in the Department of Philosophy at the University of Wisconsin. He is widely regarded as having played a formative role in the establishment of the field of philosophy of biology and is the recipient of the 2014 Hempel Award for Lifetime Accomplishment in the Philosophy of Science. He was kind enough to join me today to tell us about the design argument. Hello, my name is Carrie Lynn Evans and you're listening to New Books in Secularism, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Today my guest is Professor Elliot Sober, who's agreed to talk with us about his new book, The Design Argument. Elliot, thank you so much for joining us.
1: It's my pleasure, Carrie.
0: First, maybe start by telling us a bit about yourself and how you came to work in your field.
1: I grew up in Baltimore, Maryland and I was lucky enough to be able to go to University of Pennsylvania during the turbulent 1960s during the Vietnam War period. I was given a lot of freedom there to study whatever interested me. And I became interested in philosophy and then more specifically in philosophy science while I was there. Then I went to grad school in philosophy and I landed the job I now have here at University of Wisconsin-Madison. For as long as I can remember, I've, I've been interested in reasoning and proving things. For example, I loved geometry in high school. I thought it was so cool that you could prove stuff from axioms that seemed obviously true. And when I was in college, I just got fascinated by evidence and the health competing theories get evaluated. And those are the interests, really, that have kept, kept me busy for my whole career as, as a professor, you know, teaching philosophy.
0: Okay, that's great. So uh, a philosopher who's also interested in maths and sciences. So maybe you can tell us a bit how you came to um, write this particular book.
1: Sure. Uh, A couple of years ago, I finished writing a book about Occam's Razor, and I was hoping to avoid postpartum depression, so I was casting around for a new book project to work on. Um, And then, out of the blue, an offer came to me from Cambridge University Press to write this short book on the design argument. And I had already written a couple of articles about this before, and I published Criticisms of Creationism. So, I thought I could synthesize the, what I'd already done, add a little new stuff, and produce a short standalone volume.
0: Okay. Uh, before we get to your book on the design argument, would you tell us a little bit about the book on Occam's razor? For starters, what is that?
1: Yeah. Uh, William of Occam was a medieval philosopher who said that simpler theories are better than theories that are more complex. His slogan was, do not multiply entities beyond necessity. And what he meant is that you shouldn't postulate the existence of an entity unless the postulate is needed to explain something. Now, it's, published, it's, it's puzzled philosophers for a long time why this is good advice. For example, if nature is a complex thing, why should theories be simple? Uh, it's an ongoing puzzle for philosophers of science to think about what the role is, if it has a role, of parsimony, of simplicity in theories, in science. Um, and I tried to solve that problem in the book uh, about Occam's razor.
0: Well, that leads me to ask, does Occam's principle lead to atheism?
1: Uh, good question. Maybe. you got to read the book to find out.
0: Okay, uh, let's move on to the task at hand, your book on the design argument. Let's start with marking out the ground covered in your book and defining our terms. You focus on two different categories of the design argument, the cosmic and the local, as you call them. So can you tell us what the difference is between these two?
1: Sure. Design arguments, first of all, are arguments that try to establish that God exists, or they're arguments for God, the existence of God. Um, The cosmic design argument. Uh, begins with the fact that we know is true of the entire universe. A local design argument in contrast begins with the fact that 's just about planet Earth. The most famous Uh, design argument is a local argument. It says the the organisms we see around us are well adapted to their environments and some of their adaptive features are extremely complex. Thomas Aquinas, another medieval philosopher, thought that the existence of well-adapted organisms can be explained only by postulating an intelligent designer. And moreover, that intelligent designer has got to be far smarter than human beings are. And of course, Uh, Aquinas was thinking of God when he talked about intelligent design. A more recent design argument concerns the laws of physics that scientists now think are true. Uh, This is a cosmic argument because it's about the laws governing the entire universe. Um, And the interesting fact that uh, this argument begins with is um, the laws um, contain physical constants uh, uh, which have a kind of remarkable feature, this feature, that if the values of these constants were just a tiny bit different from their actual values, life in our universe would be completely impossible. So the argument is then made that the fact that these constants have life-permitting values Is supposed to be strong evidence for the existence of God. This is called the fine-tuning argument. It's cosmic.
0: Okay, so where do design arguments fit into theology more generally, and what is their relationship to creationism?
1: Okay, design arguments try to provide observational evidence for the existence of God. They're just like they're supposed to be just like science. Uh, They do not appeal to what the Bible says or to sacred traditions or. And they also are miles away from the idea that belief in God is a matter of faith. That's what Paley meant when he talked about um, natural theology. It's distinct from revealed theology.
0: Uh, You write that the mathematical concept of probability is an important tool for both formulating and analyzing design arguments. So, in your book, you turn next to giving a primer on that subject. Can you give us a feeling of why you felt you needed to explain the ABCs of probability here?
1: Sure. Um, Some bits of reasoning um, show that a conclusion must be true if this or that set of assumptions is correct. For example, if all rubies are red and you have a ruby in your ring, then the stone in your ring must be red. Arguments in science are often not like this. The evidence we have, for example, concerning the, the extinction of dinosaurs, why do they want to extinct, doesn't prove with absolute certainty that they went extinct because a meteor crashed into the earth and sent up a giant dust cloud, rather the evidence that best makes it probable that that's the right explanation. It could be wrong. Maybe a better explanation will be discovered tomorrow. This is absolutely the typical situation of science. Science is a fallible enterprise. Now, some design arguments for the existence of God do try to prove with certainty that God must exist, and the, but these arguments all seem to me to fail. So in the book, I wanted to find the strongest form that a design argument can take. And the way you get a stronger argument is by aiming for a conclusion that's more modest. So a stronger argument is going to say, for example, maybe God probably exists given the evidence I have, or maybe it'll say merely that the observa- this or that observation is evidence in favor of God's existence. So I wanted to isolate the strongest version that design arguments can have and then show that it fails. My goal was to refute even the best design arguments.
0: Okay, so you cover non-deductive design arguments in chapter three of your book, which means that they do not necessarily set out to deduce the conclusion that God exists. And you say here that you're trying to find, as you just said, you're trying to find the strongest form each argument can take, um, but but that doesn't mean that they all hold up. So can you take us through a few of these?
1: Well, I mentioned Paley a minute ago, uh, the most famous design argument, um, is analogical. This is his argument published in 1802. Uh, He gets credit for this argument a lot, but in fact he didn't invent it. It's been around for centuries. Um, In this argument, Paley starts off by talking about you're walking across a big open field, a heath in England, and you find a watch sitting there in the grass. You open up the watch and you notice that it, 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 keeps, it keeps good time. And you look at, at, you open up the back and you see that it's made of complex machinery. Now, Paley says to, to the reader, you, you conclude without hesitation that this watch was made by an intelligent watchmaker. And you also scoff at the idea that a kind of random process of rain pounding away at rocks is going to make a watch. And Paley says, what you just think is so obvious about the watch applies in spades to organisms. For example, organisms that have eyes, that's interesting. Their eyes have a function and the eye is a complex piece of machinery. So the eye is indeed, he says, extremely similar to a watch. And so what goes for the watch goes for the eye. Paley concludes that the eye was created by an intelligent organism maker. Now, in my book, I criticize this analogical argument, uh, and I think the main problem with it is that analogy arguments rely on considering the overall similarity of two things, the watch and the eye in the case of Paley. Now, it's true that the watch and the eye are both complex and that they both have a function, but there are lots of dissimilarities, too. Watches go tick-tock, but eyes do not. Eyes are made of flesh and blood. Watches are not. So an analogy argument does not, in fact, have the result that Paley and other friends of the design argument think it has. It doesn't show you that, with high probability, organisms were made by an intelligent designer. For me, the strongest formulation of the the design argument uh, uses the concept of likelihood. And here I have to start by pointing out that I'm using the word likelihood in the technical sense it has in science. Um... This is not uh, familiar outside of that. The reason is um, that the word likelihood and the word probability mean the same thing in ordinary English, but they actually mean something different from each other in the kind of technical usage that's standard in science. So let me give you an example that will illustrate this. Suppose you hear noises coming from your attic, and you consider the hypothesis that there are noisy gremlins up there bowling Now, none of us thinks that this hypothesis has a high probability, given the fact that you hear those noises, but the hypothesis does have a high likelihood in the technical meaning of that term. That's because the probability of noises, given the hypothesis that there are noisy gremlins in the attic bowling, is high. So in this example, the gremlin hypothesis has a low probability of being true, but it has a high likelihood. You may ask, well, what's the point of thinking about likelihoods of hypotheses if they aren't the same as the probabilities of hypotheses? I think the answer is that they give you a way of interpreting the evidence you have. So let's go back to Paley and his watch to see why. Paley notices that the watch is complex and has a function. If the watch were made by an intelligent designer, it's pretty probable that the watch would have those features. Or on the other hand, if the watch were made by by a mindless random process, it's very improbable that the watch would have those features. So the conclusion can now be drawn that the observed complexity and functionality of the watch favors the hypothesis of intelligent design over the hypothesis of mindless chance. This doesn't mean the watch was probably made by an intelligent designer. Remember those gremlins. Now I'm not saying that this argument is correct, I want to criticize it, but what I'm saying so far is that this is the strongest version of the design argument for the existence of God that I've been able to find. It doesn't prove that God exists, it doesn't try to do that, uh, and it doesn't even try to prove that God probably exists. Rather, the conclusion is more modest. It concludes only that the observations we've made favor the hypothesis of intelligent design over the hypothesis of mindless chance. Uh, one more comment about Paley. As I said, Paley published this book in 1802. That's 50 years about before Darwin published The Origin of Species. So, of course, Paley never considered Darwin's theory of evolution by, modern, uh, by natural selection. Modern-day creationists and intelligent design theorists still use Paley's argument, though there are two differences between them and Paley. First, they often talk about features of organisms that Paley didn't know about. For example, the the biochemical processes that occur when you cut your finger and your blood coagulates. The other difference is that creationists today think that Haley's argument shows that intelligent design is a better theory than the modern theory of evolution that biologists now endorse. This modern theory builds on Darwin's ideas, but it corrects some of them and brings in new ideas that Darwin never thought up at all.
0: I actually think that's a really interesting point that uh, Paley came before Darwin. Uh, that wasn't a factoid that I'd, I'd run across before, but I think it's it's really illuminating. But uh, in your next chapter, you take on biological creationism. Uh, you begin by talking about the role of auxiliary assumptions in applying theories to formulate hypotheses and how that raises problems for those arguing for an intentional divine creator.
1: Okay, let me, let me try to explain the idea of auxiliary assumptions by Again, a simple example. It's not it's not biological. So suppose you're a cook in a restaurant, and the waiter walks into your kitchen and says that a customer has just ordered oatmeal. This makes you wonder whether the order coming into your kitchen favors the hypothesis that your friend Jack placed the order over the hypothesis that your friend Jill placed the order. Is the oatmeal order more probable if Jack placed? the order than it would be if Jill had done so. Now here we're thinking about likelihoods in the sense I just explained, not the probability of hypotheses, but the probability of what you observe, the oatmeal order, under each of the two competing hypotheses. Now to figure out whether the oatmeal order favors the Jack hypothesis over the Jill hypothesis, you need to know something about what your friends like to eat. If you know nothing about the goals your friends have, you won't be able to interpret the evidence you have. Now, this simple point, I think, applies to the design argument for the existence of God. You examine the features that the vertebrate eye has. What's the probability that the eye would have those features if it were made by an intelligent designer? What's the probability that the eye would have those features if it were made by the evolutionary process of mindless natural selection? That's what you're trying to think about. Now, creationists all say that the first probability is high. The features you see the eye to have are highly probable, given the hypothesis given the hypothesis that the eye was made by an intelligent designer. But why think that God would want us to have the kinds of eyes we have? We don't know what his goals and ability we don't know what his goals are here in any detail at all. So, for example, the human eye has a blind spot. But the eyes that octopuses have do not have a blind spot. In that respect, they have better eyes than we do. So the question can be asked, why did God want octopuses to get this benefit and deprive us of it? If we're ignorant about God's goals and abilities, we can't conclude that the observed features of our eyes, or for that matter, the octopuses' eyes, either are evidence in favor of the existence of God, or maybe evidence against the existence of God. We just can't answer that question. By the way, the assumption that God is all-powerful and all-knowing doesn't help solve this problem. In fact, it makes the problem worse. If God can do anything at all, and he knows everything, why in heavens would he have chosen to give organisms the features they have rather than other features? This is a colossal mystery, and if it's insoluble, the design argument goes down in flames.
0: So when you discuss this problem for the design argument, you point out that we have no way of knowing whether such a god would want individual organisms to do well, or groups of organisms to do well, or the genes within those organisms to do well. And if we examine this question in some detail, uh, what are the logical consequences for biological creationism? And conversely, how does it play out for the natural selection hypothesis?
1: Okay, let me start with modern evolutionary biology, and the the idea that I was trying to convey in, in this part of the book is that the theory as we now have, it says that different traits evolve for different reasons. So let me explain that. Now, it's a familiar fact that natural selection can cause traits to evolve that help organisms to survive and reproduce. That's why tigers have sharp teeth and zebras run fast. But there are other patterns, other characteristics, uh, there are other patterns to the process of natural selection at work also. Uh, For example, Darwin recognized that sometimes traits evolve that are good for the group, though they're bad for the individual organisms that have them. Darwin came up with this idea when he considered why many species of social insects have sterile workers, Worker sterility isn't good for the sterile organism, but it's good for the group. That's why Darwin invented the hypothesis of group selection. Not only do individual organisms in the same species compete with each other, in addition, groups compete with each other. Darwin thought that the process of group selection is especially important in understanding human evolution. Why do human beings help each other in numerous ways? Darwin's answer is that groups of cooperators do better than groups of selfish individuals where the selfish individuals are all, are all competing with each other. So modern biologists now usually recognize that group and individual selection are both important evolutionary processes. Darwin had that idea. So that's, you know, that that that's not the new thing, but there is something going on in this in this neck of the woods in biology that involves ideas that Darwin never dreamt of. Biologists now realize that the genes in an organism sometimes compete with each other, and and furthermore, the genes that are successful in this competition often hurt the organisms in which they live. That's what cancer is all about. Cancers are usually caused by mutation events, and the cancer cells in your body replicate faster than the normal cells. If the cancer cells win this within organism competition, the result is bad for the organism in which the competition occurs. So cancer is an example of the wider category that biologists now call intra-genomic conflict, conflict within the genome of a single organism. So what we have now in modern evolutionary biology is natural selection operating at three different levels. Going from small to large, the three levels are these, First, uh, competition of genes with other genes in the same organism, that's the cancer example. Competition of organisms with other organisms in the same group, that's tiger having sharp teeth. And thirdly, uh, there's competition of groups with other conspecific groups in the same population of groups. And that's the example involving the evolution of altruism and cooperation. So what this means is that natural selection tends to produce very different kinds of traits in different situations. You can put this metaphorically by saying that natural selection uh, cares about different things, not just one thing. So now let's go back to the design argument and ask, what does God care about? If your answer is that God cares only about helping organisms to survive and reproduce your God hypothesis will make mistaken predictions about what you'll find in nature. On the other hand, if you answer that God cares only about helping species to avoid extinction, now your God hypothesis is in the same pickle. Once again, it makes mistaken predictions about what you'll observe. And if you Come to the conclusion that you really don't know what God cares about, you're conceding that the design argument is a failure. Since then, there's no way to say whether the God hypothesis makes what you observe in nature very probable or very improbable or somewhere in between.
0: So some biological creationists have argued that the existence of irreducibly complex biological systems poses an insurmountable problem for evolutionary biology. But you disagree, not only with their conclusion, but also with the way that they understand the issue. So please explain.
1: Michael Behe is an intelligence design proponent who's argued that what he calls irreducible complexity either cannot evolve by the process of natural selection, or has such a low probability of evolving by natural selection that the selection hypothesis cannot be the right explanation. So let me explain first what Behe means by irreducible complexity. He says that a structure like the eye is irreducibly complex when it has a function, and the structure would not be able to perform its function if any of its parts were removed." Now, that, I hope, sounds a lot like what Paley said in 1802 about the eye. But as I mentioned, Paley didn't discuss natural selection. Behe's thesis is that irreducible complexity refutes the theory of evolution by natural selection. Now, my, my, my opinion is that, that Behe's wrong about natural selection for two reasons. First of all, natural selection can produce a structure that's irreducibly complex by adding parts and then doing a bit of subtracting. So let me give a non-biological example of what I mean by adding and subtracting in the construction of a structure that's irreducibly complex. So imagine a stone arch with an opening underneath of it. It's curved and it has a keystone at the top which keeps the blocks in place. There's no mortar or glue or anything that keeps the stones connected to each other, and they're extremely smooth. Now, what this means is that if you remove any stone in that arch, the whole arch will collapse. So the arch is satisfying the definition of irreducible complexity. So let's now ask the question, does that mean that it's impossible to build the arch one stone at a time? Uh, the answer is it is possible to do that if you allow if you're allowed to add and then subtract. So I hope the listeners can visualize this. What you can do is build a solid wall, one stone at a time that contains the arch and then remove the stones that are underneath and above the arch, leaving the arch standing there, such that if you remove any one of those stones that are there, it's going to collapse. So you get irreducible complexity by adding and subtracting. That's something that I think Behe does not take into account. The second mistake I think Behe makes in his reasoning about irreducible complexity concerns function switching. So let me explain what that means by talking about wings. So a bird or an insect cannot fly or glide if it has 1% of a wing or 2% or 3% and so on. So how can gradual natural selection cause a wing to evolve the organisms to fly? Here's the idea uh, of function switching and how it helps solve this problem. Suppose wings in an insect start very small. They don't give any ability to fly at all. But there are these little wing buds that permit the organism to regulate its body temperature so that by turning the buds towards the sun or away from it, it the organism can control its body temperature. Now, maybe wing buds evolve by first facilitating temperature regulation and then continue to evolve because they start to facilitate gliding and flying. So the idea is that the structure starts to evolve for one reason and then continues to evolve for another reason. Uh, and the result can be uh, that, we, that the insect is now using its wings for flying. And it's true that if you take away a big chunk of its wing, it's not going to be able to fly. But the mistake that Behe is making is thinking that shows that it can't evolve gradually. It can do that by function switching. So the big picture that Behe has is an irreducible complexity is a stake through the heart of the theory of evolution by natural selection. And for the two reasons I mentioned, I think he's wrong.
0: So now we turn to the fine-tuning argument, and this encompasses the claim that some creationists make that if our so-called laws of the universe, um, to just use a general term or general idea, were even slightly altered, life would have been impossible. Therefore, we can conclude that our universe was specifically designed to nurture us, and hence God. So you argue that there are two main flaws in the fine-tuning argument. Can you explain the first?
1: Sure. Uh, My first objection just uses the problem of goals and abilities that I mentioned in connection with biological design argument. So the fine-tuning argument assumes that God, if there is such a being, wants there to be life and has the ability to create laws of nature that make it possible for life to exist. My question is, if God loves life so much, why is there so little life in the universe? There's a lot more cosmic dust in the universe than living creatures, by anybody's guess. So does that mean that God loves dust more than life? So again, for me, there are these assumptions that are made about what God wants, the the, uh, the universe to be to like and these are to me simply assumptions that are not defended by design arguments.
0: Okay, the other objection to the fine-tuning argument that you explore considers the significance of a live observer to the question of how the process of observation should be taken into account in assessing an observation's bearing on competing hypotheses. This is kind of a complex idea. Can you explain that one to us?
1: Yeah, I'll try. I, and the, the The concept that I want to try to clarify is called observation selection effects. What does that mean? So here's an example, nothing to do with the design argument. Suppose you go fishing in a lake and you're using a net to catch fish. So you put your net into the lake, you wait a while, and then you pull it up and you find that there are lots of fish in the net and that all of them are more than 10 inches long. Your first thought might be this, that this observation is evidence that favors one hypothesis about the lake over another. The first hypothesis says that all the fish in the lake are more than 10 inches long. The second hypothesis says that only half the fish in the lake are more than 10 inches long. So the the observed content of your net favors the first hypothesis over the second, you think, because the observation has a higher probability if the first hypothesis is true than it would have if the second hypothesis were true. So far, so good. But then you notice that the net you use to fish has holes that are so big that fish that are less than 10 inches long that swim into the net are going to easily escape. Now, given what you just noticed about the net, you revise what you said before about the observations that you made and the two hypotheses. You now conclude that what you see in the net does not discriminate between one hypothesis about the lake over another. So the net with big holes has induced an observation selection effect. There's that concept. You think you're getting evidence, you notice something about the process of observation, and you realize you didn't get any evidence at all that helps you to decide which hypothesis is better than which other hypothesis. So now let's go back to the fine tuning argument, and I want to show you how something analogous to a net with big holes is going on in that story. So the, the fine-tuning argument starts off by observing that the laws of nature make life possible. And it says that this observation that the laws are life-permitting is supposed to favor the God hypothesis over the hypothesis of mindless chance on the grounds of the observation that the laws are life-permitting has a higher probability if the God hypothesis is true than it would have if the chance hypothesis were true. But notice that when we observe that the laws of nature make life possible, the individuals who are doing the observing are alive. So given that we are alive, the observation that the laws of nature are life-permitting fails to discriminate between God and chance. So the fact that we're alive is like the fact that we went fishing with a net that has big holes.
0: (laughs) That's a good illustration. Uh, So my final question about your book is about your intended audience. I suspect that for many proponents of intelligent intelligent design, their beliefs are motivated by spiritual sentiment and therefore may not be swayed by your mathematical probabilities. So I'm wondering, what kind of person or what kind of philosopher is it that engages in the other side of this debate?
1: I, I have no quarrel with people who want to believe in God, even though they can see that there's no evidence for the existence of God. That's what faith is all about. Uh, my book is aimed at people who think that biology or physics furnishes evidence for God's existence. And there are lots of creationists and intelligent design proponents who believe that. They think this is a scientific hypothesis. It's a supernatural hypothesis, but it can be supported with scientific evidence. That's what they think. And I want to show you that that's a mistake. But there's a second audience I have in mind. I'm interested in communicating with atheists and agnostics who, you know, for whatever reason, uh, do not, don't think that God exists, but they maybe aren't cl- so clear on the, how to respond to the way creationists criticize evolutionary theory, and maybe they, they're not clear about what's gone wrong in the, the fine tuning argument. So I'm hoping that this book will interest not just theists who are creationists and intelligent design proponents, but also um, atheists and agnostics who want to get more information, more clarity about the way these arguments work and why the design argument fails, which I think it does. So I'm hoping that the book will be read by my fellow philosophers and by philosophy students in classes, I hope. But I also hope that there's a wider audience that might want to dip into them.
0: Well, Elliot, I've taken up a lot of your time. I want to thank you so much again for agreeing to come on the show. But before we do go, maybe tell us what you're currently working on.
1: I'm now thinking about the use of genetic engineering to eradicate malaria. Uh, This hasn't been done yet, but new technology makes this seem like a real possibility. And I'm interested in what the risks are in one, one of the things that interests me. And also, how do you somehow weigh those risks against the possible benefits? There are 2 million cases of malaria each year, human cases of malaria on Earth. And about 500,000 people die every year of malaria. Many of them are children. So this technology uh, is scary uh, for, for many of us, uh, but it also seems to be extremely promising with respect to the job of reducing human suffering. So to me, this, to me, this is a f- fascinating philosophical question.
0: I've heard about this work in this field and I admit that it's, it's very interesting to me as well because I'm interested in uh, unintended consequences of science uh, generally. Um, so I'm curious, uh, to my knowledge there's no precedence for this kind of tampering in ecology. There's other types of tampering which um, of course have not gone well usually, but uh, are you familiar with anything similar that science has done before?
1: It's well the case of, as you just said the, the, using genetic engineering to do this is a, is a new thing the technology is you know five or ten years old basically uh, so it's being developed in laboratories it's being tried out on mosquitoes who, who are the, that's how uh, malaria spread for, from one human being to another by mosquito bites so it's been tried out on mosquitoes in laboratory because. Uh, You know enclosures. Um, It's never been released uh, uh, into the into the world, and for good reason because you want to check this out before you you do something like that. But in a broader sense. we have lots of under examples in which organisms have been introduced to solve a problem and they've done the opposite, or if not the opposite, where unintended consequences uh, ensue. So an example that I think is interesting is the rabbit population in Australia was getting out of hand. Rabbits were brought there by Europeans who just Reproduce like rabbits, and to put a stop to this, um, the Australian government authorized scientists to introduce a virus, a myxoma virus, to uh, control the rabbit population. And it did, re- did have, have some effect in that direction. Um, the, the rabbits did evolve an uh, ability to uh, be resistant to to, to the, uh, the, the the disease. Uh, but what also happened is that the virus evolved a lowered virulence because if 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 the virus kills the rabbit it's inside of the fly that bites rabbits and spreads it around won't bite a dead rabbit. So uh, this happens often in infectious diseases. Then that if the machine that the machinery that spreads the disease from one organism to the other requires the organism to be alive for for, for a bit of time, then you can get a, a reduction um, in virulence. So there's lots of examples like this where um, you know scientists have seen things happen that they didn't expect to happen. Uh, the reduced virulence of myxoma was was kind of surprising. Now it's part of kind of the standard wisdom that epidemiologists bring to bear in thinking about the evolution of infectious diseases that scientists have learned from experience. It doesn't mean that there will never be an, uh, un- unintended consequences in the future. Of course there will be. But the understanding of now is better than it was before.
0: Fascinating. Well, I hope you might consider coming back to the network with that book when you' when you've published it.
1: Okay, I'd enjoy that.
0: Well, thanks again for being on the show today. I really enjoyed your book, and I was really glad to have a chance to chat with you in person about it. Goodbye.
1: Goodbye.
0: I want to thank you for listening to New Books and Secularism, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Once again, I'm Carrie Lynn Evans, and I've been speaking with Elliot Sober about his book, The Design Argument. If you'd like to learn more about his writings or find links to some of his videos, you can check out his website at sober.philosophy.wisc.edu. If you enjoyed this podcast, please write us a positive review on iTunes, post about us on social media, or tell a friend. The New Books Network is a not-for-profit organization, so all the buzz you can help us generate goes a long way to supporting this work. I'm also interested in hearing about your thoughts on this podcast and the material we cover. So feel free to check me out on Twitter and let me know. You can find me at Carrie Lynn Land. That's at C-A-R-R-I-E-L-Y-N-N-L-A-N-D. I'd love to hear your thoughts. Do you have a book you'd like covered on one of our shows? Contact us through our website, newbooksnetwork.com. I'm also looking for a co-host for this show, because my goal is always to get out about two interviews a month if I can. But at certain times of the year, of course, this is more challenging. So with a co-host, I'd be able to be a little more faithful to my publication schedule. If you're interested, again, try to find me on Twitter. Also, be sure to like the New Books and Secularism channel on Facebook and Twitter, where you'll see every time we post a new interview. And until the next time, the next conversation about New Books and Secularism, goodbye.